following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. God, we do praise you for the privilege to gather and worship you. As we sing of the cross and the resurrection, we Lord, we, we glorify the precious gift of you reconciling us to yourself through that cross. For the gift of salvation and grace, for peace, for the abundant life, for the power of the cross. God, may we live lives with joy for the truth of all those things that has been placed in our hearts. And so we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you might draw us to yourself today. At some point in our lives, we, we felt drawn in powerful ways to you. Lord, do it again. Do it again today for each of us. Do it again for your church around the world. We pray for revival. We pray that you might do things in the hearts and lives of your people that will bring about a a greater power, a renewed commitment to serve you, to serve people, to proclaim the gospel boldly. We haven't done that. So, Father, forgive us of our sins. We confess to you our sinful lives. We confess being doubters like Thomas. We confess our rebellion and our disobedience. We confess, Lord, that many times we fear man instead of you. Forgive us. And as we think of those specific sins in our own individual lives right now, Father, we pray for your forgiveness. We have missionaries from our fellowship that we support, a mission works that we support. Through our denomination, Lord, we have missionaries around the world. We ask, Lord, that you might use our gifts today to bless their work, but empower them to accomplish what you sent them to do. You told them to go, and they went, God. So do your work in their lives. We pray that the truth of the gospel might be powerful as they present it today. Here at home, there are needs. We have people from our fellowship who are not well, some in the hospital, some at home sick. We have homebound people who can't get out. We just pray that you would minister to them this day and Use us as a church to minister to them. Convict us of that as well, our inattention to those we don't see every day. And Father, we thank you for your word. Speak to us. Mold us. Shape us. Fashion us into your likeness by your word. Through our pastor today, Lord, speak to us. And change us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 12 and working our way down through verse 21. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 12 and following. Peter writes. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in the body. To stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, 
as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the word of the Lord. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you ever forget things? I'll judge by your laughter that you do. You have no idea how good that makes me feel this morning that I'm not alone. I am a forgetful person who lives among forgetful people. Um, In our home, uh, forgetfulness shines quite regularly. It shines regularly during the week because I have an eight-year-old who somehow every single morning gets in the shower and forgets to get a towel. And we go through this routine nearly every morning. We get up. We go through the routine, we wake him up, he goes and gets in the shower, I'm making coffee, I'm doing things to get ready for the day, and I hear at some point, Dad! And I know exactly what it is. Could you give me a towel? And this week we've had this conversation multiple times. I get the towel because I don't want a naked kid running through the house soaking wet. And I say, son, why didn't you bring your towel? And you know what he says every time? I forgot. If I had a nickel for every time I heard, I forgot in a week, right? I say, son, you realized when you walk to the shower that you're going to get wet, right? Yes, sir. And you realize that when you get out of the shower, you're going to need to rectify that situation, right? Yes, sir. Therefore, you need a towel. Uh Uh-huh. Then get your towel on the way to the bathroom. But I forgot. How can you forget every day? You shower every day. How do you forget your towel every day? I don't know. If I had a nickel for every time I forgot, and I don't know, I'd have a lot of nickels. But I can't be too hard on him because uh, I'm forgetful, and my wife is forgetful. I can remember very vividly a wedding I did a few years ago in Greenville, South Carolina, downtown Greenville. It was the morning of the wedding. I was getting up and getting myself ready for the wedding, and I went to put on my suit, and I realized all of a sudden that there was a problem. I had a suit, but I had no shoes to go with the suit. I forgot my shoes. All I had was my tennis shoes that I wore up on the trip to Greenville. And so there's like an hour before this wedding, and I am in sheer panic mode. I can't wear my tennis shoes with my suit to this wedding. This poor bride and groom are going to be humiliated. I'm going to now be the center of attention instead of them. And this is not what you want when you're officiating a wedding. And so I'm literally running up and down the sidewalks of downtown Greenville, trying to find desperately any store that sells black shoes. You'd be surprised at how hard a job that was. There was one clothing store that I found. And I don't know how to put this mildly other than to just say, it sold clothing from a very particular fashion niche that was not a niche in which I live and operate. But it was my only choice. They were the only black shoes to be found within that hour time frame. And I got these shoes. They were the most hideous black dress shoes you've ever seen. They were shiny. They had these massive tassels. And it was just awful. But I got them and I wore them and did the wedding and was humiliated the whole time. But I just forgot my shoes. How do you forget your shoes to do a wedding? I remember our first anniversary. Uh, my wife and I went on a cruise. It was the first time either of us had been on a cruise. It was a simple uh, uh, four-day, three-night cruise out of Fort Lauderdale. And we had packed and gotten down to Fort Lauderdale. And we were in the terminal with all of our stuff. And we were going up this large escalator to where you get to the desk to check in for your cruise. And 
And uh, we were going up the escalator, and I, I said to my wife, now we're, we're almost there. Let's go ahead and get your, uh, your ID out. So we'll be ready when we get there. Get your driver's license out. And all of a sudden, her eyes got as big as saucers, literally. And her face went just white. And she said, I forgot my driver's license. I forgot my driver's license. And you know, like any kind and gracious and loving uh, husband, I simply handed her the keys. I said, hey, I'll see you in a few days. I hear Lauderdale is nice this time of year. It's all good. You've got the car. There's hotels everywhere. Needless to say, she was not impressed. This was before this was in, this was before 9/11 happened, and so I mean there was there just happened to be a cruise representative at the top of the escalator as we rose that saw her face and said, "Is there something wrong?" <laughs> well, yes, there is something wrong. And you wouldn't would you believe they let us on that cruise when she had no ID? No ID. Um, Oddly enough, on that cruise, it was during that time that September 11th happened while we were out to sea. And then the concern was, are are they going to let her back in? Again, I would have said, hey, cruising is nice. You'll enjoy it for a few weeks. When they get all this sorted out, I'll come get you. Again, she was not impressed. But we're forgetful people, aren't we? You forget things, don't you? I forget things. In fact, research has shown that after you listen to a spoken message, in general, people forget 90% of what they heard within an hour. So I'm not very hopeful about our time together this morning. I'm just kidding. I'm very hopeful. I know you're not the average people, right? We're laughing about forgetfulness, but you realize that when you look to the Scriptures, you find that one of the greatest dangers that the people of God face, as laid out in the Scriptures, is their natural gravitation towards forgetfulness. God warned His people in Deuteronomy chapter 8 of this great danger. He said this in verse 11 and following of Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says to His people, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good homes and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart may be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have begotten this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it's he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, And you go after other gods, and you serve them, and you worship them. I solemnly warn you today, you will surely perish. Remembering and forgetting for these people was a matter of life and death. It was a matter of living or perishing. Don't forget the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. If you forget the Lord, it's going to have tragic consequences In your life, he warns them of the danger. Here's the danger. You're going to go into this land that I'm going to give to you and you're going to become materially wealthy. All of a sudden, you're not going to be people who are needy all the time. You're going to have everything you need. You're going to have homes. You're going to have material possessions. You're going to have food. You're not going to be hungry. You're not going to be thirsty. You're no longer going to be needy. And all of a sudden, what's going to happen is you're going to now be in danger of forgetting about the Lord. You're going to be forgetting. That's the danger. You'll forget where you came from. You'll forget what the Lord has done for you. You'll begin to, to, to reason in your own heart that all the stuff you have has been acquired by your own power and your own might. And the result of that is you'll go after other gods and you'll serve them and not the Lord. And the consequence? You'll perish. You'll perish. You'll be destroyed. Hosea chapter 13, God addresses this issue again in verse 6. He says, but... Then they, excuse me, but when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, what? They forgot me. They forgot me. 
In fact, the Lord accommodates man's forgetfulness all throughout the Old Testament. He institutes ceremonies for them to do on a regular basis for the specific and explicit purpose that they would remember and not forget. They celebrated the Passover, the Old Testament. The Jews did, right? Why did they celebrate the Passover every year? Why did God institute that? So that they would never forget what God had done for them in the Exodus. There was this whole ceremonial system that was a part of their regular worship where you brought animals and the animals were sacrificed. And they did this on a regular basis. Why? What was, what was all that about? The animals and the sacrifice. Why did they have to do this all the time? The writer of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 3 tells us, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. All of that was set up because God understands our proneness to forgetfulness. So God says, I'm doing things for you to, so you don't forget me, so you'll remember. And that's a problem that we all need to realize is potential in our lives, and it was the potential for those to whom Peter is writing, because the issue in Peter's writing, in Second Peter, the issue to the people for whom he's writing, is this. There are false teachers who are coming in among the people of God, and they're preying on God's people. And false teachers find prime candidates for prey among people who've forgotten the Lord. They prey on ignorance and forgetfulness of God's people. They, they filter in among God's people and they entice them by introducing new doctrines and new beliefs. And they draw them away from the gospel and they draw them away from the truth. And that's exactly what's going on in the lives of Peter's readers. All of the next chapter, chapter 2, is a frontal assault by Peter on these false teachers and a full exposure of who they are, what their character is like, and what their motives truly are. He's doing that to protect his people. Because as you recall, this whole letter, 2 Peter, is is about Peter writing to fortify God's people against false prophets. To fortify them, to strengthen them so that they won't succumb to the enticement of the false prophets. So that they won't believe false doctrine and be drawn away from the truth. And so here in chapter 1, Peter is simply just laying the groundwork for all of that. In chapter 2, it's going to become an all-out frontal assault. You see, what's going on is these false teachers are contradicting the message that Peter has already preached, that Peter and the other apostles have already preached. The false teachers are coming in and saying, you know, you can't really believe all that stuff those guys are saying. They haven't told you all there is to know. And you know what? It's not really the truth exactly what they're telling you. They're stretching the story a bit. They're challenging the authority of Peter and the apostles to deliver God's message. And they're challenging the authority of the written scriptures to reveal God's message. And so here in our text this morning at the end of chapter 1, Peter is asserting two things. He's asserting, number one, he and the apostles' authority to deliver God's message. And he's asserting, number two, the authority of the scriptures to deliver God's message. And both of those are going to serve as a defense to bolster God's people against the attack of these false prophets. And so Peter lays this out, and we'll just kind of organize it by looking at the first section, verses 12 through 15, calling it Peter's calling. And then what he does after that in verses 16 and following is he lays out why he's confident in the second coming of Christ. Because that's the issue, that's the hot button in the day in which Peter is writing. So first Peter's calling and then Peter's confidence. So verses 12 through 15, look at this. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter makes clear here early on who he's writing to. What kind of people is Peter writing to? Did you catch it at the very beginning? He says something about them that gives us a clue as to what kind of people he's writing to. He says this. He says says of them that they are established in the truth. What does that tell you? What kind of people? Is he writing to unbelievers here? No, he's not. He's writing to people who are Christians. And he's not writing to just any Christians. He's writing to Christians who are established Christians. 
These are not lost people to whom he's writing. It's not lost people that he's concerned about in this particular portion. It's not new believers or infant Christians, if you will, that are the burden of Peter's concern at this point. What he's concerned about, the people to whom he's writing, are people who are established in the truth. These are not marginal people who who are going to be lured away by these false teachers. He's concerned that these believers who are established are going to be lured away by the false teachers. Listen, there's always the potential that false teachers can sneak into the body of Christ and lure away people, even established believers. That danger is, is, is present in every one of our lives. Every one of our lives. If you ever get to a place where you think you know it all and you've got it all figured out and you understand everything and you're no longer susceptible to false doctrine, then you're doing nothing but fooling yourself. And Peter makes that clear here. He's writing to established believers because he's concerned about their faith. He's very, very concerned about their faith. He's very concerned about the the real and present danger that they're facing at that particular moment. And so Peter says, this is what I'm after. This is what I'm after. My goal and my purpose and my calling is to remind you of the truth. To remind you of the truth so that you don't fall prey to the false teachers. Hopefully you got that when you read the passage, right? The word that keeps popping up in that whole passage is remind, isn't it? Did you see it? It's like Peter is repeating himself. I'm going to remind you by way of reminder so that you will remember. Do you think he's trying to make a point here? I'm going to remind you by way of reminder so that you'll remember. Peter's goal, his whole goal in his ministry among these people, and I believe his whole goal of his ministry in general, is that he understands himself to be a person whose sole responsibility is to remind people of the truth. And that's what his his heart in his ministry is given to. Deliver the gospel, see people established in their faith, and then from that point on continue to remind them over and over and over of the gospel and the truths related to the gospel so that they'll never forget it. That's the ministry that Peter has. It's a a ministry of reminder. Peter sees his calling as constantly reminding God's people of the truth. You realize Peter has no interest whatsoever in novelty. Did you catch that? Peter's not looking to do anything new. He's not looking to do anything different. He's not looking to wow people with, with something that's new and cool and hip and different. He's not looking to captivate their attention by something that's novel. His goal is to remind them of something that's true and has been true for a very long time. He's not interested in novelty. He's not enamored with the fresh and the novel and the different. He's obsessed with the truth of the gospel. And he's obsessed with it to the point that he knows that his people will forget it if he doesn't remind them over and over and over and over of it. So Peter says, I know you know these things. I'm not writing to you about anything that's new. I know you already know what I'm about to tell you. I already know that that you know what I've been telling you in verses 1 through 11. You know them, and you're established in these things already. But I'm telling you, I am writing to remind you so that you'll remember and you won't forget. Tom Schreiner writes, Reminders arouse and provoke believers, prompting them to prize the gospel afresh. That's what it does when the gospel is preached. And the man of God speaks the word of God to God's people and reminds them of those truths. It, it stirs up the truth in your heart and it brings it back to the front of your memory afresh and anew and causes you to look at it again and think about it again and appreciate it and honor it and revere it again. We need reminders. Peter's readers needed reminders. And so Peter writes to remind him. And let me just say, that is the primary calling of any faithful shepherd. That is the primary calling of pastoral ministry. To be a person who stands before God's people and reminds them over and over and over of the gospel and its implications for their life. That is the calling of a pastor. It's to teach the gospel to the lost until they're established in the truth. And once they're established in the truth, to consistently and continually remind them of the gospel and the truth and the implications related to it. So that they never forget it and never drift away from it. Because he understands, as a good shepherd, that there are dangers to forgetting. He understands that his people forget the gospel and its implications. They become prey for false doctrine and false teachers. 
And if they don't do that, they become lazy and self-sufficient and begin to think they can control their whole lives on their own and in their own strength and the power of their own might and their own works. They become prideful and ungrateful. It's what happens when we forget, and it's why we need to be reminded. Just remind you that that's what faithful shepherding is all about. It's not about novelty. It's not about the new and about the different. The faithful shepherd is not consumed with the pursuit of novelty. So much of what's going on in the the Christian culture in which we exist in America today is so much of it is just driven by a desire to be seen as cool and hip and new and fresh and novel. It's all about trying to impress people with something new. It's all about being trying to set yourself apart from what's before, as though you're different and new and fresh and cool and hip. I mean, you can read about it and you can go different places and see it. I read an article this week, no kidding, pastor on Sunday morning sets up on the stage a bullfighting ring with a, a real bull. No kidding. And he gets in the ring with the bull. And I don't remember why, but I'm going to tell you, any pastor that's dumb enough to get in a ring with a bull has lost me at that point. It's all about being hip. It's all about being cool. It's all about setting ourselves apart from what's old. That's nonsense. Peter and the apostles have absolutely no time for the novel and the fresh. His drive of his heart is to remind people of something they already knew and something in which they're already established. To remind people of the truth over and over and over again. Doug Moose says this, We also find preachers who are constantly seeking for the new, the novel, the different, and who tend to abandon basic gospel truth in their quest to impress their listeners with how up-to-date they are. Such a preaching ministry may be intellectually stimulating, but without constant reiteration of basic biblical truth about God's redemptive acts for us. Here's what it produces. Christians with no foundation and no hope for the future. And that's what you find in those movements. Listen, you've been, if you've been around Grace on the Ashley very long, you understand that that's what we're about here, right? The goal here on any given Sunday morning is not to impress you with something new. It's not to lay out to you some doctrine you've never heard before. Something that somebody's just discovered in the Bible. But it's to present to you the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that you can be established in that truth. And then to remind you week after week after week after week after week. What that gospel is and what its implications are for your life. So that you never forget it. And so that it never gets old and cold and stale in your life. And Peter is particularly driven, we saw in this text at the beginning here, by one particular issue. He realizes that he's about to die. Did you catch that? He said at the end of the text there, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. He uses an interesting illustration for dying. It's the illustration of a tent. The putting off of my body, the word that is used there, is a word that's used for the word tent. And the the illustration is that his body is a tent, that it's a a temporary dwelling. It's not his permanent home. Peter looks at his life and he sees his life here on earth as as a temporary sort of a thing. I'm only here for a short period of time. And the real me is inside this body. And this body is not the body that I'm intended to have forever. It's a temporary dwelling. I'm a temporary resident here. God has made me for a different place. And he's made me for a different existence, one that's permanent. Uh, There I have a permanent house. Here I have a temporary tent. And Peter says, the Lord's made it clear to me that I'm only here for a little while. And it's pretty soon. I'm going to put aside this tent. That's a wonderful way of looking at death, isn't it? Peter doesn't seem at all concerned about his death. He sees it simply as a transition, right? I'm just leaving a tent and going to a permanent residency. I'm leaving what's temporary and I'm going to what I'm created for. I'm leaving the place where I'm an alien and I'm going to the place that I was made for in the presence of the Lord. What's to be afraid of in that? Peter says, I'm putting off my body and it's going to be soon. He says, the Lord Jesus has made it clear to me that it's going to be soon. Now, we don't know exactly how the Lord made it clear to Peter. It's possible that the Lord could have made it clear in some very clear and personal way to Peter that we don't have recorded in Scripture. The Lord could have made it known to him that this is about to happen. We don't know that. But we do know in John chapter 21, verses 18 and following, Jesus had already previously told him, Peter, you're going to be martyred. You're going to die. 
John chapter 21, verse 18. This is right after Peter's restoration to the ministry. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands. That stretching out your hands is an image of crucifixion. You'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you don't want to go. This, he said, to show by which kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying that, he said, follow me. That had to be wonderful news to Peter at that particular day because Peter had just had the opportunity to stand up for Christ and he had denied him three times. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're going to have another chance at this. You're going to get another opportunity to stand up for me. And this time, you're going to do it. And you're going to do it all the way to your grave. You're going to be martyred for me. And for many of us, to hear that we're going to be killed for our ministry would probably be frightening. But for Peter, I know that was good news. And we can see that later on here. We're now a number of years later by the time we're writing Second Peter This letter that we're studying. And Peter is certainly far more advanced in years at this point. So whether the Lord has told him in some other way, or whether at this point he's just realizing, hey, I'm an old dude now. And Jesus has already told me I'm going to die. The older I get, the closer that gets. It's kind of the way it works. In either case, Peter knows he's going to die. And so he is laser focused on writing to his people and saying, don't forget the gospel. Don't forget the truth. Don't believe the liars, the charlatans, the false, the false teachers. I'm here to remind you so that you'll remember and that you won't forget. And he says, I'm doing this so that after I'm long gone, you'll be able to recall everything I've said. You know, that's the goal of every faithful pastor, is to teach the Word of God so that God's people are equipped to know and understand God's Word on their own. So when the pastor is gone, the people know the Word. That's right. That's my job. My job isn't to impress you. My job is to invest in you the truth so that if I get hit by a bus tomorrow and you're out walking in your life and you need the truth of the gospel, it's hidden in your heart because somebody's been reminding you over and over and over what it is. And you can recall it. You're not needing me because you have the truth. And so Peter sets the stage here by just establishing this is what I'm about. I'm a guy who just gives reminders. That's what I do. So that you won't forget. The rest of this passage is Peter explaining his foundations for his confidence in the second coming of Christ. Which ought to be the foundation of his reader's confidence in the second coming of Christ. And he offers really two lines of evidence. He gives the evidence of what he saw and he gives the evidence of what he's read. Two lines of evidence. Peter's saying, here are two lines of evidence by which you can count on that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. Things that I saw and things that I've read. In fact, things that you've read as well, he would say to them. 2 Peter Peter 1, verse 16. He says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The part of the gospel that Peter had preached to which he is referring here is the part of the gospel that particularly deals with the return of Christ. We don't have time this morning, but you go back to the book of Acts and you can see the early apostles preaching. And as a part of the gospel, they regularly referenced not only the saving power of Christ, but the the sure return of Christ. That was part of the the gospel message that they had delivered. And in the, the time of 2 Peter... This is the very issue that's being attacked by the false prophets. When you get to chapter 2 and then to chapter 3, you find out that that's exactly what these false prophets are doing. They've come in and they've said, listen, people, you don't have to believe all this stuff about Christ coming back. He's not coming back. That's not really the, the deal. You don't have to worry about that. There was a clear denial of the return of Christ. And so Peter is here right at the outset defending, preaching the return of Christ. Because it's clear that what's going on here is the false teachers are are making a charge that Peter and the apostles are fabricating this message about the return of Christ. It's a pretty strong charge. 
Oh, you don't have to listen to Peter. You don't have to listen to those apostles. That story about Jesus coming back, they're just making that stuff up. They're just fabricating all that. They're just, they're just selling you that story in order to control you. In order to get you to, to, to succumb to their moral code. We understand that that's the problem these false teachers have. They're also immoral people. And see, the problem they have with the doctrine of the return of Christ is, if Christ is coming back, then He's going to come back to do what? To judge and to reward. That's the whole picture of the Old Testament return of Christ. The Lord is going to return, and He's going to judge, and He's going to reward. And so if He's really coming back, and He's really coming back to judge and reward, then that means every human being is going to stand accountable before Him. And that means how we live matters, because we're going to have to give an account for it. And so, if you don't want to live by a moral code, and you want to live however in the world you want to live, and you don't want to be constrained by any gospel truth, then you just deny that the Lord is ever coming back. If He doesn't come back, then I'm not accountable. And I don't have to give an account for my life. I can live how I want to live. I can do whatever I want to do. And so the basic charge they are saying is, Peter and the apostles are fabricating the second coming of Christ. They're just, they're just using that to manipulate you, to get you to behave how they want you to behave. And I'll tell you, that's a message that rings loud and clear in the world today. I was talking with a woman just a few weeks ago from a different culture. She's from a culture in which, which is absolutely just immersed in Islam. This person was not a, a religious Muslim, but she just grew up in an Islamic context and escaped that and has been in America for quite some time now. And we were talking about religion and we were talking about Christianity and we were talking about this idea of uh, Christianity being tied with being American. And I was trying to unravel all that for her so she would understand that, that Christianity and being American are not one and the same thing. That there are lots of Americans who are not Christians. And when we began to talk about the gospel, her response to me was this. You know, I just believe that all religions, religions are just they're, just, they're just tools used by people to manipulate other people to get them to do what they want to do. Because she came out of an Islamic context where that was exactly what was going on. Religious leaders who are getting fat and wealthy and rich off of the people convincing them by religious truths to do all sorts of things in the name of their religion, which in reality was just their way of manipulating them. Listen, if you're, if you're propagating a religion that can convince somebody to strap a bomb on their body and go blow themselves up in the midst of a, a group of innocent people, you're doing nothing but manipulating somebody to get them to do what you want them to do. It is religion used to manipulate. And that should be rejected. That's not what Christianity is about. But that's the charge that's being leveled. You can't believe all this stuff. It's just a religion. It's just being used to manipulate people, to get them to do what they want. And so Peter's responding to that. He's responding to this, this charge. He says this. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths. What's that word myths? Well, you know the word myths. It means fables, made-up stories. Peter's writing into a Greek culture, and a Greek culture which was just you know, sort of oozing with stories about Greek gods and mythical stories about Greek gods. And everybody knew that the myths about the Greek gods were not literally true, right? You've read Greek mythology somewhere in your schooling. Somebody made you read that, right? Didn't they? Nod your head. That's, I know you're awake and still breathing and with me here. He says, this is not what we're about. We're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not selling you Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, everybody knows the stories aren't really true. They just convey messages that are helpful. That's not what we're about, Peter says. This is not what we're about. This is likely what the false teachers are saying. Oh, you can't believe all the stuff Peter and those guys are saying. It's not literally real. You can't take that stuff literally. They're just giving you stories that are actually made up. And there may be some underneath there, some spiritual principle that might be helpful for you. But you can't take literally the story. That's the charge. Which, in fact, is the same charge that modern-day liberalism brings into the world of Christianity. Oh, you, you, can't, you can't take the words in this Bible literally. You can't, you can't believe everything that's written here. I mean, it, the, the Bible conveys some truths, some, things that are, some, some spiritual truths that are helpful for your life. 
But you can't believe everything that's in here. I mean, really. Modern-day liberalism has introduced that into the world of Christianity. In order to, to snuggle up to the culture, in order to seem intellectual, in order to argue against the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Scriptures, they'll argue, oh, we can't take it all for true. I mean, come on, who can defend all this stuff? But there's some good stuff in there that's helpful. It's not just for modern-day liberalism. Just last year, you may have read this story somewhere online, but Andy Stanley, very well-known preacher, normally, for the most part, orthodox in what he has to say, pastor of North Point Church in suburban Atlanta, preached a message in which he argues that we should never... That we can't rely on the old, the old song that we used to, or the thing we used to say. You know, I believe it because the Bible tells me so. In his, in his sermon, he actually argues to his audience. Uh, let me just quote him instead of summarizing him. Here's what he says, a couple of excerpts from it. He says, so I need you to really listen carefully. For the, and, and the reason is this. Perhaps you were taught as I was taught. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's where our trouble began, he says. Now, at that point, we're stopping and asking, well, what's the trouble? But apparently, he sees trouble there. And the trouble that he sees there is this. He sees there a problem that he's running into in the context of his ministry, that he's talking to a lot of adults who are examples of deconversion. And what deconversion is, is people who grew up in a Christian faith, but later in life rejected it and walked away from it. And so he's saying that I'm seeing a lot of people who are, are a part of deconversion. That is, they grew up in a church, but they've walked away from it and abandoned it. And he's saying one of the reasons that a lot of people are telling me that is because they see it as just a blind belief in things that have no intellectual basis. Just blind faith. They just were taught as kids to believe things because the Bible tells them so. And they were given no more fundamental anchor than that. He says, quote, one of the threads we hear in the deconversion stories all the time, and I have a feeling for many, many of you who are losing faith or have lost faith, especially in the Christian faith, this is a bit of the part of your story. He says, the Bible says it, that settles it. Approach to Christianity is a problem. And the problem is this, he says, if the Bible goes, then so goes our faith. If the Bible is the foundation of your faith, he says, here's your problem. It's all or nothing. Christianity becomes a fragile house of cards religion. And he goes on to say, it's next to impossible to defend the entire Bible. So defending the inerrancy and the infallibility of the scriptures is a losing prospect, he says. So what do we do then? I'm curious to know, aren't you? What do we do? If we just reject the Bible outright, what are we supposed to do? How is it that we're supposed to now convince the deconverted to be reconverted? Well, he argues this. He says, look, The church made its greatest strides in the first 282 years of its history before there was a written scripture. And they just went around preaching the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And so he argues that instead of telling people to just believe things because it's in the Bible, we can go back and we can argue the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus, just like the early church did before they had a Bible. And that could be our method now for reconverting the deconverted. I don't have time this morning to deconstruct the nonsense of all of that. Other than to say, how do you justify the historical reality of the resurrection when the historical fact of the resurrection is revealed to us where? In the Bible, which you've already said is not reliable and indefensible. Well, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. But I give you that as an example of what what Peter is saying. Listen, we're not following cleverly devised myths. We're not chasing after myths. What we're telling you is literally the truth. Fully, completely, literally the truth. You can stake your life on it, is what Peter is arguing. And he says, I'll tell you how we know about it. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And Peter gives the first line of reasoning. His first line of reasoning is this. I can tell you because I saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And he immediately transports his audience back to a scene earlier in Peter's life on the top of a mountain. The transfiguration of Jesus. Do you remember that story? Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he invites them up to go up on top of a mountain with him. Matthew 17 records it. And the Bible simply tells us, and he was transfigured before them. 
And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good. If it's good, excuse me, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Peter says, listen, we're not propagating a bunch of great myths to you. What I'm telling you is historical fact. I saw it with my own eyes. I was there and I saw the veil pulled back and the glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed for a moment. I saw Jesus for a moment like you've never seen him before. I saw him in all of his glory, in all of his resplendent majesty. I saw him as the glorious and conquering king. And it was transformative, Peter says. And we might ask ourselves the question, why does Peter bring up the transfiguration? If he's arguing for the second coming of Jesus, why bring up the transfiguration? Why not bring up the resurrection? Why not bring up the angels sitting at the tomb after the resurrection that says, hey, why are you staring at the sky? This Jesus who left is going to come back. Why not go there? He goes to the transfiguration instead. Let me give you the answer to that quickly. Because he sees in the transfiguration two things. He sees the transfiguration as a validation that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And all of the Old Testament promises that promise a future coming king. He takes them back there to Moses and Elijah. And he particularly reminds them what the voice from heaven, from the Father, says, This is my what? Do you know know what that harkens back to? Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8. Commonly understood in the day as a messianic prophecy, a prophecy of the Messiah. Here's what Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8 says. As for me, this is God the Father speaking. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Everyone understood that this was a messianic psalm. And in the transfiguration, when the voice from heaven says, This is my son, what Peter is saying is this. This is an example of the Father validating that Jesus, this Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, is the Messiah prophesied in Psalm 2. It's the same person. He's the Son. And that Son's going to return, just like the Old Testament says He will. The second part of that, with whom I'm well pleased, transported the readers of Peter's letter back to Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant. This is in the midst of the suffering servant text in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I hold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. In whom my soul delights, with whom I'm what? Well pleased. There's a clear connection. And Peter is bringing up the transfiguration because that voice from heaven does two things. It identifies to Peter's readers that this Jesus who I saw transfigured before me is both the Messiah from Psalm 2 and he's the suffering servant from Isaiah 42. Both of those prophecies are Old Testament prophecies that later on speak to the return of that king and that Messiah and that suffering servant. And so Peter says, I saw him with my own eyes. And I saw the Father validate him as the Old Testament Messiah and the Old Testament suffering servant who's going to return. I have, it on, I have it on good testimony from God the Father himself. I heard his voice. I heard it. We were eyewitnesses. We heard his very voice. We were with him, Peter says, all of those things. And then he also brings up the transfiguration because of this. Get this. In Peter's mind, the transfiguration was a lot more than just a vision of the glory of Christ. In Peter's mind, the transfiguration was a preview of things yet to come. He understood that what he saw on top of that mountain was the Lord Jesus Christ giving him a sneak peek into what was going to ultimately happen that everybody was going to see at the end of time. 
The Jesus that he saw on top of that mountain in all of his glory and all of his splendor and all of his majesty in that moment is the Jesus who is going to return in full view just like that. Remember Jesus told him after that was over, don't go tell everybody about this. Don't tell anybody about this until after I'm dead and after I'm raised. Because that's when they're going to need to know it. The transfiguration, Peter is saying, was a sneak preview of the second coming. Listen to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, following. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You and I can't even begin to imagine what it's going to be like on the day that that takes place. Peter could imagine it because he got a preview of it on the top of that mountain. And Peter is saying, listen, you want to undercut the return of Christ? You want to argue this new doctrine that none of that's going to happen? Well, let me tell you, it was written in the Old Testament. And I saw an example of it with my own eyes. Who are you to contradict that? So the first line of reasoning, Peter says, I saw him. I saw him as he's going to return. And his second confidence, which we'll just scratch the surface of here at the end, is this. It's not just that I saw him, but it's been written about him from long ago. Listen to what he says in these last verses, 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know what Peter's saying here? He's saying there's two lines of evidence for the second coming of Christ. The first is this. I saw the Lord glorified as he's going to return. And that was confirmation to me that he's going to come back just the way I saw him. But even without seeing that, the prophetic word had already declared that that's what's going to happen. We have the Old Testament, Peter says. And it's reliable. And you can count on it. He says we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. When he says prophetic word, he's just talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And the Old Testament scriptures talk time and time again about the coming of the day of the Lord. When we study the Old Testament minor prophets, we saw that over and over and over again. And the apostles have made clear that the Old Testament day of the Lord is the same thing as the return of Christ. They draw those connections left and right. So Peter is saying the Old Testament, the prophetic word, has already declared that Christ will return. And for me, the transfiguration provided audible and visual evidence that what the Old Testament had already declared to be true is actually going to happen. It's as though Peter is saying, we have the Old Testament and that should be enough. But the Lord is gracious and he gave me more. He gave me a visual and audible confirmation that what was written is true and it's certainly going to come. That's what he means when he says the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And we could spend two weeks really on the rest of this passage. But Peter argues at the end of this one simple truth. When you and I look to the scriptures, when Peter's readers look to the scriptures, here's what we have. God's words. Nothing written in the scriptures, the Old or the New Testament, are the words of men. Are the words that are thought up by some human being who just sat down and said, let me just figure out some things that people need to know. 
Peter makes it very clear. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How do we get the Bible? Men wrote. God spoke. That's how we got the Bible. That word carried along is used in Acts as as a sailing term for the wind that catches the sail and carries a boat along. Men wrote. They wrote legible words that they understand. They used their own vocabulary, their own literary style. But the Holy Spirit of God was superimposing that whole process so that everything they wrote was, in fact, exactly what God wanted recorded. It was not their own invention. And so when you and I look at the Word of God, when we look at this Bible... And we turn to Second Peter, or we turn to Isaiah, or we turn to Genesis, or First Samuel, or First Corinthians, and we begin to read. You need to understand what we're reading and what we're holding are the very words of God. And anyone who comes along your life and tries to undercut that is not looking out for your benefit. They're trying to destroy you. And there will be people who come into your life just like there were people who came into the readers of Second Peter's lives. Oh, you can't believe all that. You can't believe all that stuff. Some of that's not true. Some of that's not real. Some of that's just mythical. Some of that, I mean, who were those guys that wrote that stuff anyway? I mean, you can't believe that. Don't you see there's a contradiction here and a contradiction there? And you you don't really believe this stuff back here, do you? You don't really believe all this stuff about God creating the world, do you? You don't really believe this stuff about Jesus coming back at the end, do you? Once you open the door begin to say there are pieces and parts that are the words of men and not the words of God you've just destroyed the entire Bible Peter has no part of that before he assaults these false teachers he tells his his people that he loves you need to understand Christ is coming back I've seen him with my own eyes and the word of God which is God's words And because they're God's words, they're perfect, and we can stake our lives on them. He said he's coming back. And so you better live your life in such a way that you're living in light of that reality. Because it could happen at any time. So what are the implications of that? We have to be committed to the words of God. We have to be committed to the Scriptures. We have to be committed to them, not just in word, but actually in our actions committed to them. They need to be a part of our lives. That is to say, we read God's Word. We study God's Word. We gather together on a regular basis with God's people to be reminded over and over and over and over again of the Gospel. J.C. Ryle says this, We must be diligent readers of our Bibles. The Word is the sword of the Spirit. We shall never fight a good fight if we don't use it as our principal weapon. The Word is a lamp for our feet. We shall never keep the King's highway to heaven if we do not journey by its light. There's not enough Bible reading among us. It's not sufficient to have the book. We must actually read it and pray over it ourselves. It will do us no good if it only lies still in our houses. We must actually be familiar with its contents and have its text stored in our memories and our minds. Knowledge of the Bible never comes by intuition. It can only be attained by diligent, regular, daily, attentive, wakeful reading. We need the Bible. We need the truth of God. We need to be reading it. And secondarily, we need the church. We need the body of Christ. We need to gather in a place with like-minded people on a regular basis so that we can be reminded over and over and over of the gospel. When I run across people who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I want no part of the church, I run across somebody who's completely confused. We need to be reminded. And that's why we're gathering I trust that's why you've come. Word of God and the church. We need those things. We live in a world that is full of false prophets, full of false teaching. We're inundated throughout the week with the false philosophies and lies of the world that are geared to do nothing other than to draw us away from Christ. The Bible is our lifeline to our Savior. And the church is the context in which we gather and we push back against the lies of the world by reminding ourselves of the gospel. You need that. And 
I need that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this man, Peter, who's written this letter. For the truths contained in it. We're grateful that we have the privilege and the opportunity to open up your word and study it on our own. That we have a wonderful place where we can gather and a wonderful body of people with whom we can gather in order to remind one another of the gospel, in order to remind one another of the implications for our lives. Lord, we pray that you would help us to establish ourselves on your word and to never forget it. To make your word a regular part of our lives, reading it, meditating it, meditating on it, praying it, storing it in our memory banks so that we might never forget it. Because we understand that all of us are on the precipice of danger, a real and present danger. And that danger is that we might forget you and become ungrateful, prideful, self-sufficient people who are sitting ducks for false prophets. So, Lord, humble us by your word. May we never grow tired of hearing your gospel over and over, reminded, reminded time and time again. Lord, for the person who's here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would understand right now they're in danger, perishing apart from you. You are indeed coming back, and you will come with judgment and reward, and every one of us will give an account. I pray that they would run to you this morning, cry out to you for forgiveness, embrace you by faith, and trust their lives to you, that they might be saved. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.